So, uh, it's Q&A night. It's Q&A night, and Q&A night is always really exciting because we just have, like, lots of fun conversations. And so, uh, this will probably be, uh, we're going to make a podcast for this. Everyone wants to chime in and be on the podcast now. So, yeah, yeah. So these questions were all submitted anonymously. I don't know who these people are. Um, they may, this is both from Tuesday, Wednesday night. So my promise to you is uh, we're actually going to be going through every single question. I don't know if we're going to get through every single question tonight. Um, but I've actually spent all day just kind of like prepping for this. So I usually I just shoot from the hip. But I really wanted to give more of a quality product tonight. So um, these are questions that have been submitted. Uh, they range from all sorts of topics. Uh, from easy to hard, from Bible to romance and everything else in between. And uh, obviously this isn't normally what we do, but we do this usually uh, after Thanksgiving. So I'll start off with a, a hard question, okay? Very theological. And here's the question. It comes from, we don't know because it's anonymous. What is dispensationalism and why is it so controversial? So that's the question. And, and so I'm sure that a lot of you, you don't know what dispensationalism is, so that's, that's a good question. The phrase, why is it so controversial, I think can be summed up a little bit. And usually when things are controversial, they're controversial because there's usually another opinion that is also maybe popular or widely held. So we'll get into this a little bit. But there are really three main distinctives of dispensationalism. Okay, First distinctive, number one, is that God has structured the relationships with man in stages. Stages or dispensations. If it helps you think of stages, you can think that. But God has structured his relationship with man in different stages or dispensations. And each stage, each dispensation, is a test for man to be faithful. And we see the first example of this before the fall, in the garden. Okay, Stage one, Adam, pre-fall. Is he going to be faithful to God? Is he going to obey God? Obviously, we know how that worked out. Number two, an example would be Adam to Noah. Number three would be Noah to Babel. Number four, Abraham to Moses. Five, Moses to Christ. Six, Pentecost to the rapture. Seven, the millennium. Those are the seven stages. That's, there's actually one word examples like the law, Christ, but those are kind of a, a little bit more descriptive. Number two, the second distinctive of dispensationalism is this, is that it holds to a literal interpretation of, of the scriptures. And obviously this doesn't deny uh, figures of speech and or non-literal language, but it would say that there is a literal meaning behind every single passage, which flows in nicely to the third distinctive of dispensationalism. So as a result of the literal interpretation that it holds to, there is a distinction drawn very clearly between Israel and the church. That's usually what most people are familiar with when they think of dispensationalism. Israel and the church are not the same thing, that they are very, very different. And therefore, the promises in the Old Testament that are intended for Israel are not intended for the church. Promises in the Old Testament for Israel, that's for Israel. That's not for the church. And so as a result, as a result, those promises in the Old Testament for Israel, they will eventually be fulfilled and what we see in dispensationalism is really two people. We see the church and we see Israel. Those are the two peoples of God, both saved by faith, but two people groups in dispensationalism. And the, P, 
people, that is Israel, they will receive more blessings, or rather you'd say earthly blessings, when the fulfillment of the promises of God take place and they receive the land that they still don't have, right? There's a, right, the Dome of the Rock is in Jerusalem. You can think of other, like, land that they, they still don't have. And so that, in a nutshell, is dispensationalism. But part of the question says is, why is it so controversial? It's controversial because there's another position known as covenant theology, which says some other things. And I'm going to briefly summarize this. This is by far the most academic question that we have tonight. So whoever wrote it is really good. Um, And covenant theology, very similar to new covenant theology, if you're wondering, very, very similar with an exception. New covenant theology would say that the law, the law, the law of Moses, we are no longer under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ and the moral teachings of Christ. Other than that, new covenant theology, covenant theology, they all flow in one to another. But here is what covenant theology says, and this obviously fuels kind of the, maybe you call it the controversy, the disagreement between dispensationalism. And in covenant theology, it says that God has structured his relationship with man via the covenants. You have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. That's how God has structured his relationship with man. Rather than through the dispensations or the stages, he structured it via the various covenants in Scripture. And these post-fall covenants are not new stages, are not new dispensations. They are not new tests to see whether man is going to be faithful, as dispensationalism would say, but rather they are expressions, here's the key, of a single overarching covenant of grace. In covenant theology, there are two covenants. It's a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. The covenant of works can be seen in the garden with, a, with, with Adam, right? Adam, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but one. There's one tree you can't. Had Adam been totally obedient, we'd have a very different story. But Adam wasn't totally obedient. Adam fell. Sin entered the world. And as a result, God in his goodness, God in his grace, gives us the second covenant. Not the covenant of works, but he gives us the covenant of grace, right? We are saved by grace through faith. That's really, really good news for all of us. However, even though God gave us the covenant of grace, it doesn't, in covenant theology, annul the covenant of works. The covenant of works is still very much in play and the covenant of works is ultimately fulfilled by the new Adam, the perfect Adam, who lived the perfect life for us and it was only because of Christ's total and complete obedience really that we are even able to have the covenant of grace. And so the emphasis in covenant theology is that there is really only one covenant and it's the covenant of grace. All the other covenants are simply expressions of the covenant of grace. There's not different stages to test man's faithfulness. Rather, one covenant, and it's the covenant of grace. And really, if you think about this, there's one promise of salvation. There's one promise of salvation. There's one covenant of grace. Man is saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that really is the main difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Obviously, most people think that, okay, there's something that has to do with Israel. That that is true, right? And that is part of the distinctives of dispensationalism. So, that was the first question. I'm not sure if there's any follow-up questions to that. We're probably not going to spend nearly as long on any of the other questions. Any any follow-ups to the dispensationalism, covenant theology, and new covenant theology that I briefly touched upon? Lee McDonald, Brandon Donahue? Where do you land? (laughs) What's Brandon's question? (laughs) No, no, we'll come back to Lee's in a second. Bren? 
a thought, a comment, a question? Where the New Testament says that all Israel will be saved, does that mean the spiritual descendants of Israel, the church, or does that mean the physical descendants of Israel, or does it? Right, yeah. And it would imply that without receiving Christ, all Israel would still be saved because of the promise to their ancestors. Right. Yeah, and this. I know that the dispensationalists, dispensationalists and a few others disagree on that. Yeah. And uh, dispensationalism, they do draw a distinction between the church and Israel, but they also do draw a distinction between believing Israel. Emphasis on believing Israel and Israel. So I don't think like dispensationalists are heretics or anything like that. If you're a dispensationalist or if you like, or if you're sitting here and you're like, I just heard about this five minutes ago. I like that one. Um, I like, I like covenant theology, um, which probably isn't a surprise. Romans nine tells us Abraham, or Paul is having a conversation. In Romans nine, and he and he essentially says, Yo, Israel. Just because Abraham's your grandpappy doesn't mean Jack. You guys think that you're so secure in, 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 because you're ethnically like Jewish, like you have like Jewish blood running through your veins and Abraham's your grandpappy and you guys are good to go, right? You're not good to go because not all who are descended from Abraham actually belong to Abraham. And, and, and this is like, I think, the, the beautiful picture, right, of the gospel that like because of the rejection of the Jewish people, of the Messiah, like God then goes out, Jesus then goes out, right, to the Gentiles. And so we've been grafted in. And so I would say that the people in this room who've been saved by Jesus, you have more in common with Father Abraham than non-believing people of Jewish descent. And I guess that would be my short answer. Um, I like covenant. I like the new covenant theology. Um, So, uh, yeah, and that's not to say that I interpret, I don't, because... The emphasis, the big distinctive on, on uh, dispensationalism, they, it, literal interpretation on everything. Obviously, like, I don't like, I wouldn't say, oh, well, I don't believe that. But um, that's, I guess, my short answer. Really, I'm trying to be short answer for why I hold or lean toward covenant theology. Wes, yes, and Lexi. <laughs> um, so I know you, you were talking about covenant theology and how there's covenants of works and then covenants of grace. And how ultimately it's just covenant of grace and how the other covenants are just, you know, kind of expressions of that. Yes. Why did you emphasize covenants of works as far as the emphasis of Adam and Jake in the garden? Did you elaborate on what you meant by covenants of works? Yeah. And in covenant theology, remember, there's two covenants. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. And God gives us the covenant of grace because Adam was not able to keep the covenant of works. Adam sinned, Right. Had Adam been totally obedient, we'd have a different maybe story, right? Adam's not totally obedient. Um, but yet Christ, even though we're given the covenant of grace, it's the covenant of works is not annulled. Okay, that's part of the problem. That's why we need a Savior. Because, right, we can't keep the standard of God's law. But Jesus kept the standard, right? Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus lives a totally sinless life. And so Jesus, he doesn't annul it. Rather, Jesus fulfills the covenant of works. Jesus did, as the new Adam, what Adam never was able to do. Living that perfect sinless life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. And so our covenant of grace is just really, you think about that, it's like, wow that he would give that to us. And yet it's ultimately, it finds its fulfillment, right? The covenant of works is ultimately fulfilled in the covenant of grace and or vice versa. So yeah. Lexi, a hand? Um, so when it says like we're, for new covenant theologies, it says we're not under the Ten Commandments. So there is, 
there's a hybrid version, okay? Um, and I didn't go into detail. I didn't think anyone would want to know. I was practicing this earlier, and Diana was like, it's getting boring. <laughs> covenant theology. Here's the big distinction between covenant and new covenant. Covenant theology, because we say, well, where is the law fit in? And this is a question a lot of people have, right? You have the law, civil law, ceremonial law, okay? Moral law, okay? Kind of like the three, the three pies. Where does that fit in? Well, people who hold a covenant theology would say, we're no longer under the civil law. We're no longer under the ceremonial law. You know, that's good that we're not bringing, like, animals in here and slicing them up on the floor. Like, that's good that we're not doing sacrifice. I think a lot of us can appreciate that. And they would say, but we're still under the moral law. New covenant theology would say, eh, you're kind of playing fast and loose with that. Like, if you get rid of one, you've got to get rid of all of it. And so new covenant theology, the main distinction says, we're no longer under the law whatsoever. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. You've heard that somewhere in the Bible, right? We're, we're under the law of Christ and the moral teachings of Christ revealed. And of course, the moral teachings of Christ reflect back to much of the moral law. So that's what they would say. They would, they would say you're probably not being very consistent to chop the civil and ceremonial law and keep the moral law. So we would say... Right. And they would say it's definitely reflected. And so I think maybe they find a way to be more consistent in that regard. So that's the, the big difference between New Covenant and Covenant. Very similar in all the other things except the, the issue of the law. And then what do you do with like, the parable where Jesus says, well, it's not necessarily this story, where he's like, basically, I'm here to bring like, salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles and the dogs right yeah and so when Jesus comes like he's very focused that he's only he's only when he initially comes and I think that's the key word right when he initially comes he has a very focus on like like Jewish people like that is his focus and I mean that's Romans 1 16 and 17 um, where to the Jew first and then to the Gentile uh, and so I think that that would be the, the, the caveat there you're, you're not wrong you're very perceptive in, in seeing that and then saying, but, but, and that, that but is good news for, for non-Jewish people. Like I imagine the majority of us are, so. Oh, I didn't expect us to spend that. See, it's already 7 o'clock. That, that was the longest one, I promise you that. All right. How do we know what Old Testament verses can be also applied to encourage the church? So Old Testament verses addressed to Israel. How can we know that those verses can be applied to the church? And I'm going to be real brief on this. Um, I think this has come up. There's been a provocation. I think it probably had to do with Andy Stanley and his comments saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It's kind of a stumbling block. It's problematic. Let's just stay focused on the New Testament. Um, obviously, like I could more disagree with that. And I know he's caught major flack. And uh, I know a lot of I'm, I'm not alone in saying that. But... The fact is, is the Old Testament obviously is important. Jesus quotes the Old Testament a whole lot. And the relevance, I think, is found in the fact that Jesus is constantly pointing back the people he's teaching back to the Old Testament. Have you heard that it was said? Have you heard that it was said? Have you heard that it was said? And he's constantly doing that. And so that alone, I think, should show, I think, in the, in the brevity that we have, the importance and the significance of the Old Testament. My second thing, I think, is it's that we that we're careful when we study the Bible. Um, you know, you can easily, there's a lot of, especially more word of faith denominations like name it and claim it, uh, you know, end up playing kind of fast and loose with this text. And so you have, say, hmm, classic example, Jeremiah 29, 11. You guys know that verse? Or know the plans I have for you? Plans to do you good, not to harm you, yada, 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 yada. 
you know, I've seen memes on that where the guy's like, oh yeah, Jeremiah 29 11, your favorite Bible verse? Tell me. Uh, and, and how that applies for your life. And then he's like, you know, oh, so remind me, when were you in Babylonian captivity? Like, because so, you see that, right? And you're like, well, then what do I do with Jeremiah 29 11, right? I think what you do, and, and this, is, I can't, this is just one example because I can't touch on all of them, including the verse that the person wrote down. I think what you do is, God, I think that is totally true. And think of it, one, from understanding the original audience's point of view. They're in captive Babylon. You think they need some encouragement? Yeah. And, and there's a promise there, right? Because they're not going to be in Babylon forever. That they're going to be restored back to their homeland. Some of them, they may never see it again. But, they, but their descendants, they're going to make it back. They're going to make it back. And so I'd say in a modern day context, the same God, the same God who has a plan for Israel, has a plan for you. Okay? Has a plan for you. That's true. He has a purpose for your life. Now to say that, well, that means I'm going to, my life is going to be butterflies and lollipops, that's not necessarily true. I mean, 11 of the 12 disciples, excuse me, 10 of the 11 disciples lived to die a martyr's death. According to church history. 10 of the 11, the section of John the Elder, Okay, and so I think, yes, that, that, that is, that's a true statement for a specific time, a specific situation. How does it apply? I think carefully. I think, and it's not just verses like that. I think we need to be careful in general how we apply things. Okay? Because if we're not careful, you play fast and loose, and then what? The next thing you know, like, you're the church that has, yeah, our church has that you're bragging about because you go to the church that has the, you know, the private airfield and like the eight private jets or, you know, oh, we just got this new $65 million private jet because, mm, like, God has a plan for your life. It's to prosper you. Good things, okay? Like, if you just have enough faith, you'll get that girl. You'll get that guy. You'll get that house. You'll get that job and yada, yada, yada. Um, and so how do we interpret, I think, the Bible in general? Carefully. Prayerfully. Otherwise, we can really, we can really miss the point of, of what, what is being said. And that's where I think, honestly, helpful study Bibles are really great. If you don't have an ESV study Bible... You're not wrong, but you're really missing out because they're just so great. I wish Crossway gave me like some type of like stipend or something to, to sell that, but I really think they're, they're they, they are expensive. They're so good. Um, John MacArthur makes a great study Bible too, but I think a good, also they're all really expensive. So guys, um, I'm going to keep driving unless there's a hand. If I see a hand, we'll stop. And What exactly does it mean to surrender all to Jesus? Does this mean I can't do anything for my own entertainment? I thought this question was interesting because it seems to almost break the two apart where if I'm surrendered to Jesus, then it's all going to be lame and boring and I can't have any fun anymore. And the first thing I thought of is whoever wrote this card, you should read the introduction to Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Okay? If you think, if I surrender to God, if I'm totally living my life for Jesus, I don't get to have any fun anymore. I don't get to enjoy life anymore. Yeah. Read Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedon. It's just the introduction. Uh, because that was something I think Piper uh, came across and it just opened his mind to the writings of Edwards and C.S. Lewis. But I think the nature of this question, going back to it, what does it mean to surrender it all to Jesus? And I think usually that word surrender... I think often is associated with this word obedience. So what, what does that mean? And how does that relate to my personal entertainment? Does that mean I'm going to have this boring life because I'm a Christian now? And the verse that came to mind is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Anybody know that verse? Whether I eat? Yeah, right? So whether I eat, whether I drink, I do everything the glory of God. 
with the understanding that I am, in a 2 Corinthians 5, 21 way, an ambassador for Christ. So I'm his representative. So that means everything I'm doing is the glory of God. When I go and I play hockey, and I don't get to play that often anymore, but when I go and play hockey at the rink here, men's pickup, I'm always thinking, God, help me to glorify you. Give me opportunity, God, to have missional conversations. I'm going out and playing hockey. How do you glorify God playing hockey? Well, it might be in the things I say. Playing hockey is probably honestly more likely things I don't say because it's a highly emotional game. Okay, very passionate. Um, but I think that it begins right there, just getting real practical. How do I glorify God in my classes? Point people toward Christ, right? You're in a speech class, what do I give a speech on? Point them toward Christ. You're gonna stand in front of a class for five minutes, have their undivided attention. Use that opportunity as a platform. Point them toward Christ somehow, some way. Even if it's like a secular speech, do that. How do I glorify God like with the people I live with or the people I'm in line with at Walmart? Turn around, say hi to them, have conversations, live missionally. Um, so I think when it comes to surrendering, to Christ, surrendering my life to Christ, it means living in continual obedience to God in all things. And of course, I think obviously what I'm reflecting on is certainly, I think, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, making disciples. Go and make disciples. Like if you're not making disciples, you're wrong. Think about that. Especially people say, oh, well, I'm just not in a place where I can make disciples. Jesus doesn't say, go and make disciples unless you're not in a place where you can't make disciples because you're too young or whatever it might be. I wanna wanna shift gears a little bit. How do you know the difference between lust and passion? How do you know the difference between lust and passion? And I think part of the, call it a problem, of the question is because oftentimes these are confused or rather misunderstood. So we think Matthew 5, right? If you lust after someone with your heart, it's as if you've committed adultery with them, um, with your heart. Or, uh, you understand. So we think, all right, we hear lust. Lust is bad. And we think passion. Passion would be the opposite of lust. Or it'd, be the, it'd, be, it'd be like maybe like the, the good version. But I think that would be a misconception because I think that's kind of like, all right, how do you know the difference? And I think the assumption is, is lust is bad, passion's good. Passion could also be bad, okay? Especially if you're passionate to such a degree, your emotions are going, you're out playing hockey with me, and uh, you know we start dropping F-words or whatever. That would never happen on the hockey rink, um, right? You're in that moment, right? It's passionate, it's exciting, it's intense, so is passion not cannot also be a problem? I would say passion, I think, also can be a problem. Lust can be a problem. I think lust, lust can be a problem. Passion can be a problem. I think any one of these. So how do you know the difference? Am I honoring God right now? I'm passionate. All right. How do I know? If, how, how do I know what, what it is? Am I honoring God? What would God say right now? Am I representing Christ well? Okay. I'm not lusting, but I'm being passionate and I think obviously because the two are linked together this probably has some type of romantic context to it am I honoring God so am I honoring God while I am kissing this person maybe maybe not and that I think is the question that really needs to be addressed when it comes to this I don't see any hands so I'm going to keep going are there certain sexual are there certain sexual acts that even a husband and wife shouldn't do what do you think <laughs> I'm asking I'm looking at Diana right now if you're listening <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah <clears throat> honestly if 
you don't feel comfortable or physically or sexually abused, then do it. <laughs> and obviously, you have to have that conversation with your spouse. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. That's a conversation that's supposed to take place um, when you're married and figure that out when you're married. So I don't know. I think this, I think I think you brought it up like when you're married because I think oftentimes there's a problem right there because oftentimes dating couples have this conversation way too prematurely oh, and yeah. it just awakens love and of course Solomon says don't awaken love and then you're like yeah. talking about this and you're like oh man like I'm I'm so turned on like I've gone from zero to hero and I'm just on the phone right now like and I think there, there's obviously I think some discernment that needs to happen and take place in that type of setting but yeah um, and sometimes your past can play a big part in that um, if you were sexually abused and doing certain acts make you feel um, those emotions and memories definitely uh, play a big part in whether you can do that with your spouse or not. So, Yeah. Yeah. And then there's kind of a follow-up. It says, in the context of marriage, can a couple still lust after each other? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, and, and that's where I think sometimes there's just such misunderstanding. Like, okay, lust is, is bad, or and I think and coming, and the, I had these questions stacked together because I knew they were going to come in that order. Um, where is that lust and that passion directed? Mm-hmm. Is it directed at your spouse? Uh, and I would cite, I don't know, the whole book of Song of Solomon, okay, to back up what I'm saying right here. I think there's nothing wrong where you're sitting to work, right, and you can't wait, get, wait to get home to your wife and just, like, do Mary stuff with her. Don't think there's anything wrong. Like, you're like, oh, man, I'm having all those lustful thoughts about my wife. Praise God that you're having those thoughts about your wife. Or having those thoughts about your husband. Not bad thoughts. Good thoughts. Once again, I don't even need to cite a specific scripture. Just the whole book of Song of Solomon in general, right? I mean, I'd read some of the verses out loud to you from Song of Solomon. Everyone would probably blush and be embarrassed right now. Um, I quote them to Diana sometimes just to be funny, but... Yeah, yeah. So... (laughs) Oh, man. I don't see any hands. Man. We're honestly over time a little bit, and we went through like. No, we went through like a couple. Went through a couple questions. Six. We'll do one more, okay? We'll do one more, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll knock the rest of these out next week. So, is it wrong to pray for salvation for babies? Ah, uh, is it wrong to pray for the salvation for babies, even unborn babies? I don't know if you ever thought about that. You're shaking your head no. no yeah? You don't think it's bad? Romans 1. <laughs> you know, you think about Psalms like 1, 139, 13, and you see how God has this intimate knowledge knitting us together while we're in our mother's womb. And he has this intimate knowledge of us while we're there. Okay? Whether you're born, okay, whether you're born, whether you're pre, whether you're preemie, whether you're aborted, like he has this intimate knowledge, and I think there's something to be said about that. I think when you look at, say, Romans 10:1, the verse I quote when we pray for the people on the prayer board, Paul has this overwhelming desire for people who don't know the Lord to come to know the Lord, and so yes, I, I think all day long, uh, pray for the election of that unborn child. I'm praying that. I'm praying that all day long. Uh, if I know someone who is having a baby, who has a child, I'm praying for the election of that child. I'm praying that God would save that child. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's interesting. I don't know who wrote this, but like why, I guess what I wrote down is I wrote, I'm not sure why it would be wrong and it's possible. I'm, I'm missing something or I'm looking at something differently or I'm missing this, but I'm not sure why it would be wrong, um, but I'm praying all day long. I'm praying all day long for any child, for any unborn child. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Brennan. What about praying for the salvation of the deceased? I'm not praying for the salvation of the deceased. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not praying for the salvation of the deceased because Scripture is pretty clear that at that point, um, there is, there's, it sounds cold, and I think it sounds cold. I don't know, maybe it's our English language, how the words are going to come out. There's nothing left to be done for that person. If you have a Mormon background, you know that Mormons do proxy baptisms for the dead. Uh, if you have a Catholic background, uh, you know there's issues with purgatory, okay? Um, but as Protestants, and I'm not even talking about like as a Reformed Protestant myself, just as Protestant in general, like, no. And I think understanding that has implications, and the implications is one word, urgency, There's moms and dads and brothers and sisters on this board who if they died right now, they're going to go to hell. That should bother us. That should. And that should, uh, that should elicit, I think, the urgency in knowing that we need to be praying. If you're not praying every day, for your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, the people in your life. Like, you guys, the, you're like, like, what are you doing? Do you not love them? You need to be. And, uh, no, Scripture is very clear. It is appointed a man once to live and then the judgment. And uh, we know that uh, as believers. And so, yes, I think in answering that question, there is that urgency, one word. So we talk about, as a small group, you could be anywhere. But you're here on a Tuesday night. Not because it's a click, because we're a community on a mission. We're not a community here just to hang out. We're in a community to, to live a mission. Because there's unsaved people in this city, in this neighborhood, who live in proximity to you, who if they die, they're going to hell. Okay, And we are fulfilling Jesus' command to go and make disciples, right? Not go and save people, go and make disciples. And of course, the act of inviting people, we invite them to come to our gatherings, is part of the call to discipleship to come follow Jesus and be on a mission with us not a social club Tuesday night but a mission with us